Hello everyone and welcome to Physician Assistant Study Session. I'm your host McKenna Morgan and today we'll be continuing to talk about the upper extremity from elbow to phalanges. All right everybody, welcome to episode two. Thank you for coming back. I hope you guys are enjoying it so far. As I had mentioned, we're going to be uh, working our way down the upper extremity. So we're at the just about the elbow right now. I'll work our way down to the phalanges, and sorry, that just means the fingers. I love the word phalange. Thank you, Regina Phalange. Hope you guys get the, the friends reference there. So this section on the blueprint is headed disorders of the forearm, wrist, and hand, fractures, dislocations, and soft tissue injuries. So very much like last week where I'm just pulling some really common ones that I think are important for you guys to know. So moving in with our warm-up questions. Define a boxer's fracture. This is a fracture to the neck of the fifth metacarpal. Pain over the anatomic snuff box is indicative of what injury? And this is a scaphoid fracture. What fracture is associated with a dinner fork deformity? This is a Collie's fracture. Okay, before we dive into the pathology, I wanted to take some time to put a little bit of anatomy review here. And these aren't things that I really think you need to memorize at all, but I think they're important to help you understand the topics conceptually versus just straight memorization. So for starters, above the elbow, we have the brachial artery, and at the elbow, it divides into the radial and ulnar arteries. I think those are pretty simple to remember. Just remember that brachii means arm. And then radial and ulnar, just like pretty much everything in the forearm is labeled radial and ulnar. Easy peasy. Nerve-wise, we have three, and I'm going to say a branch of a nerve. We'll start with the radial nerve, and this is located near the radial head. There's two divisions of it, so just say it's near the radial head, so it's on the lateral side. And this controls motor and sensation to the posterior arm and forearm. So if it's on the posterior side, it's the radial nerve. The median nerve is on the anterior ulnar side of the elbow. And this controls your wrist flexors and sensations for digits one through four and a half. So this is the thumb through half of the ring finger, as well as the musculature in that area in the hand. There's also a small branch of this that I think is important to know, and this is the anterior interosseous nerve. And we'll talk about what that's associated with here in just a bit. And finally, we have the ulnar nerve. And the ulnar nerve is basically on the posterior aspect from the median nerve. So it's behind the medial epicondyle. It controls sensation to the medial forearm, as well as sensation to the fifth and half of the fourth digits, and all the musculature that's on that ulnar side, including the hypothenar compartment and adductor pollicis. And finally, the anatomic stuff box. I don't think you need to memorize these. If you're pre-PA or in rotations, this is an easy pimping question, so maybe you should memorize it. But for those retaking boards, I don't think that's necessary. So this is a nice one you can actually see and palpate it on your own hand if you're thin enough. On the medial side, we have the extensor pollicis longus. And then working our way medially, we have the extensor pollicis brevis and the abductor pollicis longus. The nice part about the snuff box is if you can't remember if it's the extensor or flexor and abductor, adductor, is that you can palpate and move your thumb through the range of motion. And then from there, you're just remembering that it's a brevis sandwich. So 
So longest brevis longest. So again, working our way from lateral, this is the radial side. We have the abductor pollicis longus, the extensor pollicis brevis, and then the extensor pollicis longus. And that's the anatomic snuff box. Okay, moving on to the pathology section, we're gonna start with a supracondylar fracture. And this is a pediatric injury. It's more common in kids five through 10. And they happen with a fouche with a hyperextended elbow. On x-ray, a normal elbow x-ray on a lateral view is that the anterior humeral line must intersect the capitulum. You may also hear this called the capitellum. Um, that was weird, I'm going with capitulum here. Of course, in a non-displaced fracture, this may still be in alignment. So if you're like, well, they're having pain, but it's in alignment, I don't really see anything. What we look for, it's called the fat pad sign. And what it is, it's a little bit of a shadow on the x-ray. And it can be either in the anterior portion or the posterior portion of the humerus. And what that darkness is, is actually blood. So anterior to the humerus is sometimes normal, but a posterior fat pad sign is always abnormal. So if you see that, they need an ortho consult. And as I had mentioned before, there's the anterior interosseous nerve, and that's at risk here. And this is, a, again, a branch of the median nerve. And how I remember this is that they need to be able to make an okay sign. So that is the test. And so I remember that they need to be a-okay, a-okay for anterior, interosseous, and then okay because that's the sign they need to make. If not, they need immediate surgery. That's kind of the name of the game with ortho here. If they have neurovascular compromise, they need treated right away. Uh, here, the brachial artery is also at risk, and it can lead to a condition called a Volkmann ischemic contracture. And aside from the Volkmann part, it's a contracture of the wrist secondary to ischemia. So um, that's a really small point, but it, I think it's worth kind of noting. Moving on distal down the arm, we have radial head fractures. And again, a lot of these are just going to be fuchsias. That's how they happen. Um, this is the number one elbow fracture in adults. Not that you can't see it on kids, but um, just more common as a fracture in adults. These are often difficult to see on x-ray, but they too will have a fat pad sign. And they'll be unable to fully extend their elbow. Treatment, of course, um, conservative versus surgical. Elbow dislocations are really rare, but of course it's on the topic list, so it's worth mentioning. Uh, most elbows dislocate posteriorly, and when I mean that is that the olecranon goes backwards. And these can be associated with a medial condyle fracture. And because we're at the elbow, we, we have all of those neurovascular structures, so we need to make sure that they're not injured. And it's a dislocation, so they get an emergent reduction. Every dislocation gets an emergent reduction. And then split, sling, PT, etc. Another dislocation is a nursemaid's elbow. And this is a dislocation of the radial head with possibly an associated stretched annular ligament. I think it's important to know that it's the annular ligament. So how do I remember this? The word annular means ring-shaped. And I can generally remember that it's a dislocated radial head, but radial is related to circles. And the head of the radius is kind of circular. So I think radius, circular, it's kind of like a ring, and annular means ring. So just lots of circles with nursemaid's elbows. 
Also, these can be caused by playing airplane, which is also the kiddos going in a circle. So hopefully that helps you guys remember annular ligaments for radial head dislocations. Um, another common way to injure these is a sudden pull of a pronated arm. So a mom grabs their kiddo or, or dad, grabs their kid from running into a street and they pull it. This is usually in young kiddos, one to four, and they present with their arm either fully extended or slightly flexed and pronated. And they'll refuse to use their arm, absolutely refuse. And the pain will increase with supination. They'll have a little bit of tenderness, but usually no swelling because there's actually nothing broken here. It's just dislocated. You're gonna reduce this. And I do think it's important for you to know the two ways to reduce a nurse-made elbow. The first one is that you take the elbow, put pressure over the radial head and you hyperpronate. The second one, still putting pressure over the radial head, but you're going to supinate and flex at the same time. As far as which one's better, um, there's some data about it, but I just don't think it's you know within the scope. Just know that you can either hyperpronate or supinate with flexion. And to confirm that you've successfully reduced it, you're gonna use what's called the lollipop test, or some of us here in the sunshine call it the popsicle test. And you want that kiddo to reach out to you to grab their lollipop for being such a great patient. And if they will not reach all the way out to you, one, they don't get the lollipop. And two, it's probably not reduced all the way. So try and reduce it again. Consider imaging if you failed to reduce it twice or the child continues to refuse to use the arm because they could also have a fracture associated with this. Or it could be not reduced entirely. All right. Next topic here is olecranon fractures. Um, again, it's, I mean, it's a pretty basic fracture presentation. Just know here that the ulnar nerve is at risk because remember the ulnar nerve is on the posterior side right by the olecranon, so be careful there. And next up is olecranon bursitis. And this is associated with repetitive trauma or rheumatologic conditions. And they'll present with a goose egg swelling on their elbow. They may, may or may not have decreased range of motion and some tenderness, but keep in mind that erythema and warmth may suggest an infection here. Treatment, ice, NSAIDs, avoid pressure by using maybe a pad or sleeve or just by activity modification. The next two topics I think are nice and testable and seem to be pretty common, and those are the, those are the epicondylitises. I don't know if that's a word, but I really like saying that, so I might have just made up a word here. First, we'll be starting with lateral epicondylitis, and this is known as tennis elbow. What's affected here is the extensor and supination muscle groups. They'll present with local pain and swelling, and they'll have pain with wrist extension against resistance. So here the elbow is fully extended, and you'll provide resistance while they try to extend. Um, this is as opposed to medial epicondylitis, which is golfer's elbow, and these have Pretty much the same symptoms, except for they'll have pain with flexion against resistance. And this is affecting the flexors and pronator groups. So there's a couple ways that you can remember this. First, golf and flexor both have an F in them. So if that works, that will do. However, remember you can bring your body into the exam. That's why I love about ortho. And the forum is really easy for you to access while you're in the exam. So if you remember what your medial epicondyle is, you can flex your hand, flex your wrist, I should say, and you'll be able to feel those muscles. You go, okay, that's a flexor group. If you palpate the lateral epicondyle and extend your hand, you're going to be able to feel those muscles work. So either golf and flexor both have F 
or just palpate your own elbow. Treatment for both is the same. Acutely, we might put them in a sling or a wrist brace because remember those forearm muscles are actually controlling wrist action. Ice and NSAIDs. For preventative, we'll use a forearm strap. If it's recurrent, they may get steroid injections or in extreme case, surgical debridement. All right, moving on to nightstick fractures. And what this is, this is an isolated ulnar shaft fracture. And this is a defensive injury. So the name implies that you are getting struck by a nightstick. Those are those big rods that you see. And imagine that you're getting hit by one of those. So what you're going to do is you're going to put your arm up to prevent it from hitting your face. And you're exposing your ulnar side. And so that nightstick will hit the ulnar shaft and break it. And treatment for these is just cast versus surgery, of course. And a progression of these, there's two. The first one is called a Montegia fracture. And this is a proximal ulnar shaft fracture with a radial head dislocation. These guys may have injury to the radial nerve because you're dislocating the radial head. And if we can remember from last week what physical exam finding is associated with a radial nerve injury. First drop. Good. Now, we're going to take the Montegia fracture, which is, remember, an ulnar shaft fracture with a radial head dislocation, and we're going to spin it. So a Galeazzi fracture is a radial shaft fracture with a dislocation of the distal radial ulnar joint. So take a Montegia and flip it over. Another way to remember this is the um, shortened way for distal radial ulnar joint is D-R-U-J, drudge. And drudge has that kind of J sound, like a G. So that will help me remember which one is dislocated with Galeazzi because it's drudge. Um, and then a Montegia is just flipped around. So hopefully that helps. Um, these are dislocations, so they're unstable. So you got to treat them. Uh, the take-home message for that, though, is that you need to evaluate the elbow and the wrist if they have a forearm injury. Moving down to cubital tunnel. And this is an ulnar nerve compression. And because it's the ulnar nerve, they're going to have symptoms in the ring finger and small finger. So they'll have tingling and numbness. This often increases with elbow flexion because that compresses that cubital tunnel. And over time, they may have decreased grip strength. And to diagnose this on physical exam, they may have a positive Tennell's sign. So what you're going to do is you're going to go and there's a little groove between your olecranon process and the medial epicondyle. And you're going to tap there. Tennell's is tapping, T's and T's. And a positive is that this will induce pain in the numbness down their arm. You may also try a Froment sign, and this tests the adductor pollicis, which is still innervated by the ulnar nerve. And what happens is you have the patient hold a paper between their thumb and their index finger, and the PA pulls away. So I remember in a Froment, you take the paper from me. And a positive is that they'll be unable to hold the paper or they'll flex their IP joint in compensation. So Froment, take paper from me, Tennell's tapping. You can consider nerve conduction studies for this as well to make sure that it's coming from the elbow and not another location, say their thoracic outlet. Treatment, NSAIDs, physical therapy, elbow immobilization, especially at night. Remember, this is increased with elbow flexion, and we tend to fold our arms up at night. Um, it's a pretty uncomfortable brace, but some patients can try maybe a pillow or something like that. This keeps going on. You can do surgery, do a cubital tunnel release or an ulnar nerve transposition. 
I don't think you need to know those types of surgeries. Just wanted to throw that in there for you. Moving to the distal forearm, we have a Collie's fracture. And this is a distal radius fracture with dorsal angulation. So here there's a lot of Ds. So there's dorsal angulation and the dinner fork deformity. C, D, D. Dinner fork deformity, dorsal angulation. And if you're looking at this on x-ray, I feel like the easiest way to explain it on a podcast is that from looking from proximal to distal, the distal radius is being angled posteriorly, which is dorsally. So again, the distal radius is angled posteriorly when looking from proximal to distal. Hopefully that makes sense. I think the most important part is dinner fork deformity. This is as opposed to a Smith fracture, which is similar except for its ventral angulation. And these guys have a garden spade deformity. So I think S is Smith and spade. And you just distinguish between the two using a lateral view because we always want two views with x-rays except for clavicles. Again, conservative versus surgical treatment, TBD. All right, one of the favorite fractures to be tested on is a scaphoid fracture. And again, this is caused by a foosh. Uh, this is the number one carpal fracture. You'll get an x-ray for these, but they may be normal and often are normal. You'll repeat them in two weeks. However, you're like, how do I treat this if their x-ray is normal? If they have tenderness over the anatomic snuff box, you treat them like they have a fracture. There's a high risk of avascular necrosis in this area. So it's important just to be cautious, get them treated immediately. So treatment here, I do think this is important. You know what this is. A thumb spica, depending on how acute or chronic it's going to be. They're a splint or a cast. They'll probably end up in a cast. But they need thumb spica. If it's anything by the thumb involving the snuff box, they get a thumb spica. If it's displaced or they have a non-union, meaning that our uh, conservative treatment didn't work, they'll go and have surgery and have a screw put in. A couple of soft tissue injuries now. The first one being mallet finger. And this is an extensor tendon avulsion. So if you imagine that you don't have an extensor tendon, that means you can't extend. So you're pre you'll present flexed at the DIP joint. This is commonly associated with a proximal distal phalanx fracture. So that distal phalanx, the pro proximal aspect may be fractured. Treatment for these is you splint in uninterrupted extension times six weeks. You need to have a really compliant patient for these. Alternatively, you can surgically pin them. The opposite of this is called a jersey finger, and this is a flexor tendon rupture. I think the best mnemonics are often the most inappropriate, so I'm sorry. This is not going to be a G-rated podcast. So how I remember this is that you'll be stuck in extension, so you won't be able to flex your finger. So I imagine that in Jersey, you flip people off if you're stuck in extension. Hopefully that helps. Sorry to anyone in Jersey, but that's how I found it helpful. Surgical repair for these is common. As a fun fact, it's usually around day 10 to 14 post-injury, just allow the swelling to go down. And uh, another soft tissue, one of the I should say diseases that have the name finger in them. This one is different from the other two, but I think it's important to be able to break them apart and know which is which. And this one's called trigger finger. And what happens here is that nodules form on the volar aspect of the flexor tendon. So when the patient pulls the trigger, 
for example. The tendon gets stuck in that pulley and they have to forcefully unlock the digit. So they pull the trigger and they're stuck there. Treatment for these is NSAIDs, steroid injections, rheumatoid steroid can cause atrophy or surgery to release the pulley. So trigger fingers, you pull the trigger and you're stuck because of a nodule. In Jersey, you flip people off because you're stuck in extension. And a mallet finger, one is the one that's left and it looks like a mallet. Uh, one more soft tissue injury, but this one is for the thumb. And these are, these are considered really kind of a spectrum of the same disease. This is the gamekeepers or the skier's thumb. It's a sprain or a tear of the ulnar collateral ligament of the thumb. So collateral ligaments are always the ones that just kind of run along the sides of a joint. You have them in your knees, your elbows, etc. That's why this one is called the collateral ligament of the thumb. And it's on the ulnar side. So it's that medial portion kind of in that little curve of your thumb. This leads to an unstable metacarpophalangeal joint, MCP joint. In skiers, this is acute. They fall and they just hyperabduct that thumb. Gamekeeper, this is from chronic hyperabduction. And you're like, what is, one, what's a gamekeeper? And two, what are they doing that causes chronic hyperabduction? When I first heard of these, I thought of video game people. And that's not it at all. <laughs> gamekeeper, like Hagrid. Gamekeeper, works with animals. It's a little bit morbid, but fun fact, and I think it'll help you remember it. It's from breaking bird necks. So imagine you would grab both sides, you have your thumbs, and then you abduct. So hopefully that helps remember that it's hyperabduction. These may also be associated with a proximal phalanx fracture, obviously just of the thumb. And again, this involves the thumb. It involves the MCP joint anywhere near it. So they get a thumb spike, a splint, and a referral to a hand surgeon. Another fracture that I think is really easily and love to be tested on is a boxer's fracture. And this is a fracture to the neck of the fifth metacarpal. Um, these are generally caused by punching things. Pretty easy. It's a boxer's fracture. It's a good name for it. So these can be treated, obviously, conservatively or surgically. And the criteria we use is that the fifth metacarpal is allowed 30 degrees of angulation, but no rotation. As far as the other metacarpals, the index finger is allowed 10, the long finger is allowed 20, and the ring and the small finger are allowed 30. So 10, 20, 30, 30 for the metacarpals. They get treated with an ulnar gut or cast. Next is a Bennett's fracture. And this is an intraarticular fracture through the base of the first metacarpal. A comminuted version of a Bennett's fracture is called a Rolando's fracture. I think that's about all you need to know about those. Kind of jumping back to soft tissue injuries, we have what's called a Dupuytren contracture. And this is obviously a contracture, and it's of the palmar fascia. So these, the palmar fascia develops into these cords. And what happens is they end up having this fixed flexion at the MCP joint, and you'll see that they can't flatten their hand on a table. This most commonly affects the ring finger and the small finger. And risk factors for these are being a 40 to 60 year old male, alcohol abuse, or Northwestern European. Again, not the most correct way to remember this, but I'm imagining a 50 year old drunk Irishman with a Dupuytren contracture. Often we observe these. You can do a steroid injection. Again, remember steroid injections cause atrophy or physical therapy. 
if they're really bad, you can also do surgery. Next up is decoverance tenosynovitis. It's a synovitis, that means it's inflammation. And inflammation typically comes with pain. So they have pain along the dorsal radial wrist. So if you're looking at that dorsal radial wrist, this is also called the first dorsal compartment of the thumb. This also happens to be the lateral border of the snuff box, which as we said earlier was the abductor pollicis longus and extensor pollicis brevis. Just to kind of get your orientation, just know that it's right along that first part of the thumb. This is common with um, repetitive gripping or riders. A physical exam test you can use for this is called the Finkelstein test. And then you have the patient make a fist, but they're going to make a fist over their thumb instead of their thumb being outside the fist. And then ulnar deviation will elicit pain. So Finkelstein test, you could call it the Pistolstein's test. Treatment for these, again, it's around the snuff box. It's around the MCP joint. So they get a thumb spike up. Uh, here they can have a splint because nothing's broken. NSAIDs and, of course, activity modification. Get them to write a little bit less. All right. couple left. Carpal tunnel. This is the number one compressive neuropathy of the upper extremity. It affects females twice as much as males. And this is a neuropathy of the median nerve. So it's, the symptoms are going to be in that median nerve distribution, which is the first through half of the ring finger. This is often increased at night. Patients will say, I wake up and I got to shake out my hand. My hand falls asleep. We're not talking about this here, but there is a syndrome called pronator syndrome, and it's basically compression coming from the elbow of the median nerve. But I think it's more important that carpal tunnel wakes you up at night. If this is chronic, you'll see thenar muscle wasting. And the thenar area is just that big beefy area of muscle right below your thumb. This is contrasted to the hypothenar area, which is um, the muscle tissue below the pinky. You can diagnose this using a Tonell sign. Obviously, you're not going to be tapping at the olecranon. You're going to be tapping over the carpal tunnel. Uh, they also have a physical exam called the Phalen's sign, or Phalen's test. And you're basically going to flex both wrists together. So you're going to have the dorsal aspect of your hands together. And they're going to hold that for 30 to 60 seconds if they can last that long. And it may reproduce their symptoms. Again, since it's a nerve, you can consider a nerve conduction study. Treatment for these guys, NSAIDs, activity modification, a volar brace, or surgery if refractory. All right, our last topic for the, today is a ganglion cyst. These are also called the Bible bump because they used to smash them with Bibles to treat them. Don't recommend that. If that's an answer, always no. It's just a soft mobile mass. It's completely benign. They may resolve spontaneously. You can try NSAIDs. You can try aspirating or injecting them. You can also try surgically removing them, but they often come back. So usually with these, they just reassure them that it's normal. It's nothing to be concerned about. All right. Going back to some questions. Tonell sign can be used to diagnose what two conditions? Cubital tunnel and carpal tunnel. Tonell's test. What ligament may be stretched in a nursemaid's elbow? This is the annular ligament. Remember, annular means ring, radius, circles, all of the circles with nursemaid's elbows. 
What specialized physical exam test can be used to diagnose decovariance tenosynovitis? This is the Finkelstein test, or the Fistelstein test is how I remember it. Okay guys, we made it. Take home points, five things you should remember from this episode. Number one, dislocation and or neurovascular compromise equals unstable equals immediate intervention. Number two, thumb involvement, whether it's the ligaments, the articulation, the bones, what have you, means they get a thumb spike up, splinter cast depending. Collie's fracture is associated with a dinner fork deformity. A boxer's fracture is the neck of the fifth metacarpal. And finally, pain at the anatomic snuff box is assumed to be a scaphoid fracture and treated accordingly. Okay, everybody. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I appreciate all your comments. Please feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Shout us out on social media. We do have a Facebook page, PA Study Sesh. Share it with your friends. Subscribe to us. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, anything at all, my email is pastudysesh, that's P-A-S-T-U-D-Y-S-E-S-H at gmail.com. I'd like to thank Lee Rosevere for the use of his songs, Curiosity and Tech Toys, as the intro, outro, and question portions of our podcast. Looking forward to next week. Next week, we're going to be talking about the spine. Have a great week, everybody.